Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What are you waiting for? Come on in. This podcast may contain graphic content and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Murder, Mischief, and Moscato. Well, thank you. Thank you so very much for having me. You're welcome. Y'all are here with Mary Swartz and Hannah Green, sitting in the chair across from me. Wow. I know. You did that so professionally. Thank you You've so gotta, much. You have to stop doing that. They're going to start expecting it. <sighs> the drunk one is gone. She's gone. Never to be seen again. Our ratings are going to plummet. Your <laughs> nose is growing faster than I can open the door. <laughs> wow. Holy shit. Oh, oh. I kind of love what we do. I, I absolutely do. Absolutely All right, so do. Last week you talked about numbers. 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 Yeah. Countries and listeners and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, Because that is what you were in charge of. That is part of that it. That is what you in char- part of what you are in charge of. Yes, solely. Hannah takes care of our social media. She pays attention to our numbers. She's our little number cruncher. She does a fantastic job. I do the editing. I put it out there. I add the trailers. And she hopes for the best. <laughs> oh. So we're going to talk about what I do this week. Okay. Okay. And we're not going to drag it out or anything, but for any of our listeners who listen on a regular basis, if you've been listening for the last couple months, I have been throwing trailers for a quickie anytime out there, and if you have listened, you know it's pretty goddamn funny. All the time. It is so funny. They're really quick episodes. They're usually 20 minutes max. Yeah, 15 to 20. Yeah. You can fit them in your smoke break. You can. Um, so I'm throwing like two or three minute trailers on the end of each of these episodes so that you guys can, A, maybe get a little bit of relief from the, the subject that we talk about on this podcast because sometimes we talk about stuff that is really hard to digest. True Crime Obsessed calls it a palate cleanser. Okay. Thank you, True Crime Obsessed. Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jillian. Because, yeah, the trailers are like a palate cleanser. They're kind of like the coffee beans that you s- what is it you smell when you when you um, are sniffing candles? Do you smell coffee beans to clear your nose? No. I don't even know what I'm talking about, do I? No. It's like the, the pep- drunk woman's bag. <laughs> it's like the peppermint ice cream you have at the end of a mirror. meal. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> that you're starting with a straw. <laughs> 
Listen, if you're snorting peppermint ice cream with a straw, you're broke. I, you're broke. I want video. <laughs> anyway, that is that is what a quickie anytime is. It is a palate cleanser. It is get rid of the yucky stuff and laugh your ass off. Oh my god. So and you it, never ever know what you're gonna hear on there. No, you fucking do not. You do not. So it is a q u i c k i e. A-N-Y-T-I-M-E, a quickie, anytime. Make sure you stop and listen, join us. I think you will find it quite a welcome, refreshing palate cleanser. Yes, yes. It won't burn the way it does if you snort peppermint ice cream up your nose. And I will tell you, I have the best time putting some of those trailers together, and then I listen to the entire trailer before I stick it on the end of one of these episodes, and... Sometimes I just laugh till I have tears, honest to God. I'm... I will say, however, if you're eating peppermint ice cream while you listen to a quickie anytime, you might... Put the spoon down. Just put the spoon down. You you might want to not, not eat ice cream while you're doing this because you might shoot ice cream out your nose. I was trying to mow the lawn the last time I listened to an episode. How'd your lawn look when you got done? Like Did a really drunk woman? <laughs> Didn't really give a shit. <laughs> Like a drunk woman uh, tried to mow it? Oh, my God. It was so funny. Oh, so man. So fucking funny. Yeah. Well, you know, even some of our own episodes on here are that way. Yes. Yes. Because I will tell you, I do listen. We, we Mary and I do listen to our own episodes after they come out. Um, we want to, you know, it's kind of that double check that, you know, we didn't miss anything. We didn't screw anything up. And yes, Is we, it cringeworthy? <laughs> We intentionally leave some of our oopses in there because we're human. Yeah. You know, we don't ever want you to think that this is some professional, you know, uh, well done job. <laughs> we are really Only on accident. We really are who we are. And so we want you to know how human we are and that we screw shit up. But so I was listening recently to the episode that Mr. Jingleheimer Schmidt was on. And my face was spread, and I was laughing until I snotted on myself. And I'm lucky I didn't crash my car. <laughs> oh. Because some of the things that came out of Mary's mouth that episode were, wow. <laughs> wow, Mary. Mr. Jingleheimer Schmidt continues to make an appearance, whether he's here or not. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, he adores all of this and of course it doesn't hurt that he adores us so yeah yeah we're very lucky very lucky all right on that note yeah um if you're new welcome if you are a long-time listener welcome back we normally don't spend the first five or six minutes babbling about ourselves we honestly do not nope um we do have an adult beverage on every single episode. Today we are drinking something absolutely lovely. I have not had this flavor of a wine in a long time. Yeah. Um, we are drinking cranberry wine, which comes from Pele Island Winery. That is in Kingsville, Ontario, Canada. It is like drinking liquid really Good cranberry sauce. It is. It's it smooth. Is. There's a little tartness there. It's smooth. Oh my gosh! But it's like like it's not like pucker your face tart. It's just like mm-hmm. just a beautiful right 
Um, I happen to be lucky. I have a direct supply to this wine. You tell them that that is a good choice. Um, we recently started carrying it at work, so I'm thrilled because we've been working on changing up our wine selection at work. Well, it helps to have someone who drinks wine yes. giving a little bit of input. However, maybe next time we could not blindside Hannah with a wine tasting at noon uh, when she hasn't eaten in two days. <laughs> She's a lot of fun when you do it, though. Because <laughs> after about the eighth wine sample, my head was a little bobbly. Everything's so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to find out because I suggested a wine we wouldn't have normally drank. So you and I are going to drink that one on the air one of these oh, days in the near future. Goodness. Um, I'm I am looking forward. This is going to make another appearance here in probably a month or so because I'm going to pick up another bottle of this and we're going to mull it. Oh yay! That'll be fun and exciting. I love that. So yeah. all righty, let's move on. Let's get all the shit out of the way and move on. All right. <clears throat> are you ready to talk about the asshole fuck up of the day? <sighs> what did the twat waffle of the day do? Born October 4th of 1968, as a child, Beverly Altwit would pretend to be injured in order to gain attention. She took to wearing bandages and casts over quote-unquote wounds, but would not allow them to be examined. As a teenager, she began spending an excessive amount of time in hospitals with numerous physical complaints. And I'd like to know where the fuck her parents are, but they're not part of the story. At one point, she convinced a surgeon to remove a perfectly healthy appendix. And when they realized what she was doing, she would have to go in doctor shop and move from one physician to the next. She attended Grantham College in Lincolnshire and trained as a nurse. Her bizarre behavior continued throughout her training. Her attendance during her training was poor due to her many illnesses. And as a result, she failed her nursing exams. Even though she failed, she was still able to obtain a position at Grantham and Kestevin Hospital in Lincolnshire in 1991 as a state-enrolled nurse, and she was assigned to Children's Ward 4. And we all know this is not going anywhere good. Anyone who listens on a regular basis knows that when I talk about children being abused, that is really hard for me. So yep. I'm just going to ask for your forgiveness now if, if uh, this gets rough on me. On February 21st of 1991, seven-week-old Liam Taylor was admitted to the ward for possible pneumonia. During the second night of his stay, the code team was summoned because he had stopped breathing. Despite the efforts of the team, Liam had suffered severe brain damage and the choice was made to remove him from life support. Knowing that he would never recover, his parents made the heart-rending choice to take him off. His death was listed as heart failure, and Beverly was his nurse. If you cannot pass your nursing examinations, you should not be in charge of patients. Uh, yeah, you think so? Two weeks later, 11-year-old Timothy Hardwick, who suffered from cerebral palsy, was admitted after he had suffered an epileptic seizure. Within a few minutes of being alone in Beverly's care, his heart stopped, and again, despite the efforts of the code team, they were unable to revive him. His death was attributed to his epilepsy, even though no obvious cause of death was found. On March 3, 1991, one-year-old Kaylee Desmond was admitted for a chest infection, and Beverly was assigned as her nurse. Five days later, Kaylee went into cardiac arrest. She of was course su- she did. She was successfully resuscitated and transferred to another hospital in Nottingham. While she was being examined at the new hospital, the physicians noticed a peculiar puncture mark under her armpit 
and they found an air bubble. It appeared to be an accidental injection, and no one ever investigated it. Oh. On March 20th of 1991, a five-month-old was admitted for bronchitis. So the five-month-old was admitted for bronchitis, and shortly before he was to be discharged, he was taken care of by Beverly. He was nearly comatose when he was found, and his blood was checked, and they found a high level of insulin in his blood. He would suffer from the same symptoms three more times before they transferred him to another hospital in Nottingham. And when he arrived at the hospital, his blood was checked by the new hospital. He was again found to have a high level of insulin. The nurse that was sent with him in the ambulance was none other than Beverly. Oh, gee, why does this not fucking surprise me? Miraculously, he survived. Wow. March 21st of 1991, Bradley Gibson a bare young man was admitted for pneumonia, and later that evening, he went into cardiac arrest. He was successfully resuscitated. When he, his blood was tested, he was found to have a high level of insulin. He was cared for by Beverly, and eventually his heart stopped again. After he was resuscitated for the second time, he was transferred to another hospital in Nottingham. So at this point in time, we're talking about one month. Jesus. One month. And how does she think she's not going to get caught? fucking the same day, two-year-old Yik Hun Chan, and I hope that I pronounced that correctly, was admitted after falling from a window and he suffered a skull fracture. Now, while he was being cared for by Beverly, his oxygen levels dropped dangerously low twice. He was then transferred to a larger hospital in Nottingham. On April 1st of 1991, two-month-old Becky Phillips would admit, was admitted for a stomach virus, and while being cared for by Beverly, she began exhibiting symptoms of hypoglycemia. She was examined and finding nothing wrong. She was sent home with her mother. During the night, she went into convulsions and died later that evening. As a precaution, her twin sister, Katie Phillips, was admitted oh, to Ward 4. Just in case it was, you know, like, I don't know. Not long after being cared for by Beverly, she stopped breathing and had to be resuscitated. Two days later, she again stopped breathing. But this time, she suffered permanent brain damage due to a prolonged lack of oxygen. When she was transferred to another hospital, it was later found that this had been the result of her receiving large doses of insulin and potassium. Now following this, four more helpless little baby victims fell prey to her vicious attacks. And on April 22nd of 1991, little baby Claire was admitted following a severe asthma attack that required her to be placed on a ventilator. After being left alone with Beverly, she suffered a cardiac arrest and had to be resuscitated. She was stabilized and then left alone with her nurse. And shortly after, she suffered another heart attack. And this time, the doctors were not successful. An autopsy was performed and it was discovered that she had traces of linocaine in her tissues, which is a drug that is given during a cardiac arrest, but never to a baby. When the police were finally notified, they examined the records of 25 suspicious cases, and in most cases, the victims, four of whom had actually died, either had high levels of potassium or insulin or both in their systems. The only common factor that linked them all together was Beverly. She was eventually arrested and charged with four counts of murder, 11 counts of attempted murder, and 11 counts of causing grievous bodily harm. While in prison, she was examined by several healthcare professionals and found to be exhibiting symptoms of both Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen syndrome by proxy. On May 23rd of 1993, Beverly was convicted and given 13 life sentences for murder and attempted murder. She is presently serving her sentence at Rampton Secure Hospital 
in 59 days. That is the damage that this bitch managed to put on all of these families. Fucking awful. 13 babies in 59 days. I have no fucking words for hospitals who cover their own asses instead of doing the right and the moral thing. Well, I really do have words, but my father would not be proud if he heard them come out of my mouth. So happy on birthday to this incredibly gross depiction of woman. I have a name for douchebagette. It's like a female loaf of bread. It's like a douchebag, but it's a female. She's okay. a douchebagette. Oh my god, yeah. She's fucking, oh. Just, oh. You know, when you take your child to the hospital, you're trusting that the people there are there because they want to help. Yep. Yes. Of all the places in the world that you could ever leave your baby... Yes. That should be the one place you don't have to worry. You're right. And on the other hand, when you have a sudden uptick of something happening that is unexplained, you find the common denominator as fast as you fucking can. Yep. And you don't move her to another hospital, and you don't gloss it over, and you don't find an excuse. You fucking turn her in. Yep. Yeah, crazy. We've heard too many stories about medical personnel who yeah. just get moved to another hospital or just get fired or just get... Yep. Everybody makes it. No. No. Well, I no. absolutely 100% agree. Children are worth so much more than that. So much more. All right. We're going to go in a different direction. <clears throat> Good. This one, this on this day, actually has a tie to our hometown. I can't even imagine what it could be. On this day in 1895. <clears throat> 1895. The American film comedian and director, Buster Keaton. Oh, my God. Who was known for his deadpan expression and his imaginative and often elaborate visual comedy was born. Now, the reason that I'm telling you that Buster Keaton has a tie to our hometown is because he spent a lot of his time, his summers here in Muskegon. Wow. There is still the Buster, Buster Keaton Society here in Muskegon. We do a Buster Keaton uh, festival I mean, like, there's a whole thing about him. In fact, in our little hometown museum, it's not really that little, but it's it's a couple of floors, um, there's actually a thing about Buster Keaton in our museum. That's super cool. He was originally named, his, his birth name was Joseph Frank Keaton IV. He was born in Pika, Kansas. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so... He cool. was he was known as the great stone face of the silent screen. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So there you go. All right. Are you ready for a story, girl? I am very ready for a story. Okay. The name of my story is called Amashita. Ama Amasisha. Sorry. Okay. Amasisha. Okay. A M A C I T I A. It's Latin for friendship. Okay. Those of us who are parents know and understand that mothers and fathers are usually worried about something when it comes to our children. Mm-hmm. As infants, as toddlers, definitely as teenagers. Even as young adults, we worry they're going to struggle with life decisions. We worry that they're going to make the same mistakes that we did. Because if only they would just listen to us, mm-hmm. we could tell them all the things not to do. That's true. Even as they go off to college, we worry. Of course we do. 
part of our DNA. It's part of our job as parents. We know that it's a huge step for our child to embark on a new stage in their lives, to go off and be adults on their own with our, our guidance. We can only hope that we have done our job well and trusting them to make wise choices while having fun and getting a good education. Today, today our, set, our story is set in Mobile. That would be Mobile, Alabama, where the University of South Alabama is located. And if you've never been there and you go there, you are in for a treat. There are only about 200,000 residents in the vibrant, yes, historic town, but it has a whole lot of claims to fame. Originally settled in 1702, the first Mardi Gras celebrations were held in Mobile in 1703. Wow. They switched to New Orleans 15 years later. And and in the, in, in the Mardi Gras celebration, people used to throw boxes of Cracker Jacks off the parade floats. What? And they eventually switched to moon pies because the moon pies were less dangerous. They I was going to say they didn't hurt as much. They didn't have sharp corners. <laughs> I personally like Cracker Jacks better. I don't think I've ever had a moon pie. They're... Gross and disgusting, in my opinion, but don't tell the people in L- in Mobile that. Okay, well, they love their moon-, moon pies so much that instead of dropping a ball in the new year, they drop a giant moon pie. One of the first videos that ever went viral on YouTube was shot there in 2006 in Mobile, Alabama, featuring the Crichton Leprechaun. You have to go see it. I did. I went and saw it. I- yeah. You went to Mobile without me? No, I went to YouTube without you. <laughs> It's going to be like, that's rude. You're not allowed to go on vacations without me. Along with its history and its obvious entertainment, Mobile is an important hub for shipping and manufacturing, aerospace and aviation. And that is really just the tip of the iceberg. After reading up on all of this, I definitely have Mobile, Alabama on my places to visit list. In 1979... 18-year-old Catherine Foster was starting college at the university, and she could not have been more excited. The super-friendly, dark-haired girl had the largest smile. She was also quite smart behind her good looks. She was very hardworking, and she was dedicated to her family. Catherine had born in, been born into her family on March 11th of 1961 in Pascagoula, Mississippi. The family was Catholic and very tight-knit. After graduating as salatorian from Pascagoula High School, Catherine decided on the University of South Alabama for the next leg of her life journey. And there were several reasons for this decision. The college was only 40 miles from home. Okay. Her high school boyfriend, Tom Jordan, was going there on a soccer scholarship, as was another young woman named Tish O'Sullivan. Now, Catherine and Tish had been best friends since kindergarten, so it wasn't really a surprise to either family that they chose to attend the same college. Shortly after starting at the college, Catherine and Tish met another young woman at the college who came from Pascagoula as well. Jamie Kellum and the two young women hit it off well. They began doing everything together. If you saw one, you almost always saw all three. On Thursday, February 21st of 1980, Catherine had plans with Tish and Jamie to go off campus and go shopping after Tish finished her last morning class. The three of them planned to meet up in the campus parking lot of Jamie's car when class was over. After class, Tish made her way to the car, expecting to find the other two, and when she got there, only Jamie was there. Surprised, Tish wondered where Catherine could be. Wasn't like her to not show up for a shopping date. Jamie told her that Catherine had been there and realized she apparently had forgotten her purse and told Jamie she would run back into the dorm, grab it, and be right back to the car. 
Okay, that makes sense. By the time Tish arrived, Catherine had not yet returned, so the two waited for her a little longer, just kind of chit-chatting, and eventually they figured that Catherine had probably run into her boyfriend and had decided to go with him instead. And although it would have been nice of her to let them know about her change in plans, they shrugged it off and they went shopping without her, figuring they would just run into her later. Okay. After shopping, Tish had a 2 p.m. class that afternoon that she and Catherine had signed up for together. And Tish figured, you just wait till I get into class. She is going to hear it from me. She's not ditching me for Tom. Not yet again. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. But Catherine was a no-show for her class. Catherine wasn't a class skipper. Because to make the second highest grades in your entire graduating class, you kind of have to be there. You have to do the work. And it was not in her DNA to not attend classes for something so trivial. So after class, Tish went to the campus library where she ran into Tom Jordan. She said... Where in the heck is Catherine? He was the last person she'd been with. But Tom, Tom was shocked at the question. He didn't know where she was. He didn't know that she had ditched her friends earlier in the day. He didn't know she hadn't showed up for class. He said he hadn't even seen Catherine that day, nor had he spoken to her. And there was an excellent reason for that. A few days earlier, Tom and Catherine had gone to a party together. And during the evening, they had gotten into a fierce argument when Catherine caught him kissing another young lady at the party. Oh. Of course, Catherine was extremely upset. And it really didn't help matters when Tom blew it off and told her it didn't mean anything to him. So as Tom told Tish, Catherine wasn't even speaking to him. She was still pretty damn angry. By 6 p.m., Catherine still had not made an appearance and the three friends were becoming increasingly worried. Tish made the decision to call Catherine's parents first and see if they had heard from her. She told them that their daughter hadn't been seen since mid-morning and when she'd gone to go get her purse and she hadn't returned. Walker and Joanne Foster jumped into their car and made the 40-mile drive to the university. Walker and Joanne had met when the two of them worked in the same office at the local shipyard. They had dated, they'd fallen in love, and they'd gotten married. Joanne was a practicing Catholic. Walker was Lutheran. Okay. It didn't take long for Walker to convert. And soon the two were parents to seven children, all of whom were raised with a Catholic education at Our Lady of Victories. Education was such a priority for the foster household that they were willing to go without anything extra like, oh, air conditioning. And we're talking in the South. Uh, yeah. Simply to ensure that their children got the very best education that could be provided. The family as a whole was super active in their community. The community knew and loved them in return. They were the kind of parents who never missed a sporting event or a theater show or a bake sale. Basically, if their children were involved, one or both parents were there. To their shock and surprise, when the Fosters arrived at the university, they found that they were not able to file a missing persons report. Their, daughter, their daughter was 18. She had every right to leave if she wanted, and she did not have to answer to anyone for it. Uh, excuse me? That's what the authorities told them. At the age of 18, she had the right to go. 
Parents had to wait for 24 hours, and then they would take the report. Just because they had to wait 24 hours did not mean they were going to sit around and twiddle their thumbs. Good. They handed out photos to campus security with the request that they show it around and ask anyone that if they had seen her. Campus officers agreed to do that. They also met with Catherine's family and her friends. They learned that this behavior was very much out of the norm for her. She was extremely dependable and never went away without informing someone and checking in occasionally. After 24 hours, a missing persons report was taken and filed. Missing posters were going up all over the campus with Tish and Jamie leading the way, creating and distributing the flyers, talking to any students they came across and trying to rally the troops. By Saturday, Catherine had been missing for 48 hours and search parties were being formed. The police were conducting the searches, but any students who were willing and wanted to help were welcomed into the search. The searches would not just include the entire campus, but the surrounding areas also, including all of the wooded areas nearby. They started right after daybreak, and around 10.30 in the morning, a group of searchers came across the body of Catherine Foster in a wooded area not far from the university. Catherine had been shot twice in the head with a twenty-two caliber gun. Jesus. Now the scene here in, in itself was strange. There did not appear to have been any type of struggle. There didn't appear to be any foul play. Catherine lay on the ground. Her clothes were in perfect shape. Her hair was perfect. Her makeup was perfect. It was almost as if she just lay down to take a nap. There were no drag marks anywhere in the area as if she had been killed somewhere else and her killer had carried her there and placed her down gently. There was nothing to indicate that Catherine had been tied up or had tried to get away from her attacker. The autopsy reported that, yes, Catherine had died from two gunshot wounds to her head. She had no defensive wounds. She had not been sexually assaulted. Mm. Her body was in such good condition that they estimated she had died somewhere between Friday night and Saturday morning. Was it possible that Catherine had known her killer, gone with him willingly? Had she been kept a captive? The students in the university were in shock. One of their own had been murdered. How could such a thing happen in their teeny tiny town? Who was so callous and uncaring to take the life of a young, vivacious, beautiful student? And who would be next? Catherine's friends also did not handle it well. Tish was distraught and had lost her very best friend from all the way back to kindergarten. Tom had lost the love of his life and Jamie... Jamie seemed to take the news worse than the other two. She could not stop crying. She was inconsolable. At the start of the investigation, the police looked into any kind of lead that they could find. Other students, all of Catherine's friends, there was really no one who didn't have some sort of alibi for at least part of the time frame she'd been missing. A student came forward and said she had woken up in the middle of the night due to having asthma. She said while she was awake and she heard what sounded like fireworks at around 2.38 a.m. The police wondered if those were the gunshots, but that would put Catherine's time of death 24 hours after they originally thought. They did have a few other suspects. They had a student that worked in the maintenance department, and they had two security guards, but they too all had alibis. In fact, the two security guards had been together making their rounds. They also had heard the two loud noises that sounded like gunshots. They assumed some kids had been partying. Police ran a background check on the maintenance man, only to discover he was hiding a criminal record. He had an arrest for sexual assault. He had given a student a ride home one night, and once inside, he attacked her. She fought him off. He shot her in the leg. She ended up escaping and making a report, which ended up with his arrest. Police detectives noticed 
very quickly that the student he attacked and Catherine looked very similar to each other, which made them very eager to talk to the maintenance man. How did these people get hired? Does nobody do a fucking background check? Apparently not. Apparently not. The maintenance man had a solid alibi, and he provided them with time cards for his employment, proving that he was not even in the area when Catherine disappeared or when she reappeared. When questioned, her friends all had alibis. Tom was in class during the day and in his dorm in bed, alone, the night of the gunshots. Tish and Jamie had been together when she went missing. The family had arrived not long after, and everybody's whereabouts could definitely be verified after that. And Catherine's case went cold. A few years later, in 1983, the police received a tip that a man was trying to commit suicide. When they responded to the scene, they found a male who was dead in an apparent suicide. The man's name was Michael Maris. He had been one of the security guards that they had looked into on the campus. He was on duty with his partner the night that the gunshots had been heard. Michael had taken over 200 sleeping pills on February 22nd, 1983, and he died. February 22nd could have very well have been the third anniversary of the day that Catherine Foster died. As detectives looked around Michael's home, they saw a lot of evidence that told him that Michael was a very disturbed man. He had become obsessed with Catherine's case. He built a shrine to her to prove his love with photos, drawings, maps, writings. He even had a copy of the autopsy report with some of it highlighted, and he had made his own notes on it. There were newspaper clippings pinned to his walls with details circled, and from his books and his papers, investigators surmised that Michael was obsessed with death and executions. They said it was truly one of the most bizarre scenes that any of them would come across in their careers. But that really wasn't the end of it. I'm just so confused. The investigation into Michael Morris became even more a little freakish when they found a homemade cage hidden high in a space in his garage. The cage was large enough to hold a person. In fact, it had a sheet and mattress and pillows inside of it. Okay, that's fucking creepy. <clears throat> the cage was built from chicken wire, had a lock on the outside. Because chicken wire keeps any human being in. This could explain what happened to Catherine during the missing days. Could explain why there were no ligature marks. Maybe. Having worn a uniform for work would make it understandable why Catherine might feel comfortable going somewhere with him. The problem was this theory that was Michael was on duty the night the shots had been fired with a partner and both of them had heard the shots at the same time. It didn't take long for them to determine that the cage had actually been built and used to hold a person. His grandpa. Oh my God. According to Michael's family members, Michael held his grandpa in the cage because grandpa had dementia. The cage was supposed to hold him so he wouldn't wander around in the neighborhood. They would lock grandpa into the cage at night so he wouldn't get out and injure himself. No matter the explanation, this entire thing was fucking creepy because why would you fucking do that to your grandpa? Michael was eventually ruled out as a suspect. He might be ultra creepy, but he was not the killer. Oh my God. So the case was still cold. Mm. Detectives went. They came. They went. The case got handed down with each new detective squad. And then eventually Sergeant Mike Morgan was in charge of the very, very cold case. Mike had attended and graduated from the college, and he had been aware of the case during his years there. He felt that it was only right that he should be the one to crack the case and bring the killer to justice, bringing peace and closure to those who had spent so long looking for it. On December 4th of 2002, Mike received a call from the local police department telling him that they had a man in their station. Had a very odd story indeed. If the story was true, it would blow the foster murder case wide open. So of course, Mike's intrigued. 
And he immediately drove over to the station to meet a man named John. Now, John attends the local AA group in Pascagoula. And not only that, but he sponsors others as well, helping them get on their feet, helping them keep clean. So John tells Mike a story. And he tells the detective that one night after a meeting, one of the attendees stayed afterward to speak to him and tell him that they were troubled. They'd been working really hard on their program, and they were on step nine of the 12-step program, and they were struggling to move forward. Because step nine of the program says, quote, Step nine requires one to be willing to go to any lengths to make amends, provided they don't end up causing someone new or additional harm. The individual must be willing to take this step no matter how severe the personal consequences. If making amends requires the person to report a past crime, he or she must be willing to go to jail to complete this step on the road to recovery. The spiritual aspect of the mandate encourages the recovering individual to seek strength and guidance to do the right thing from a higher power and from the others who are engaged in the program. Making amends must involve sincere efforts to apologize. The notion of being sincere involves adopting the right attitude before you make the approach. One may need to forgive themselves and to forgive a person on the list for any actions done in retaliation. Step nine should be pursued according to a plan that does not assign blame and allows the person who had been harmed the freedom to respond, even if the response is angry or unforgiving. That's, and that's the end of that quote. Okay. So John suggested to this person that they write a letter of apology to the person that they feel that they have wrong. And then they read it to them. John also stated that he would drive them where they needed to go to read it to them. So they would have support and they would not feel alone. So the person wrote the letter and John drove them to the place so they could read the letter to the person that they had harmed. Hmm. And here's the Cemetery? letter. Cemetery? Here's the letter. Did you read my notes? Nope. Dear Casperin, after all these years, I come to you. It is me, Jamie, the one that took your life. I don't know where to begin. I was your friend, but I was obsessed with Tom, and you were in my way. For what is worth, Tom hated me after your death. Although no one could ever prove that I shot you, everyone knew that I was obsessed with Tom, that I had manipulated my way into his life, and I think many people suspected that I killed you. I am wanting to tell you how my life was shattered after this. In some ways, in this one horrible act, I destroyed two lives, yours and my own. But as I write, I realize that even now, when I come here to sort things out with you, that I am being selfish. Kate, I am acutely aware of what I did that day. In ending your life, I robbed your family and your loved ones of a future with you. Only God knows what you would have contributed. At the very least, I robbed you of the chance to experience a full life. No children, no fulfilling career and the opportunity to continue on the path you are on and to grow in God's love. You were a good girl, a good Catholic. You cared about people, and you were going to Ireland to work with children in the war zone to try to be, bring peace to the communities. You traveled to Mexico to help the poor in Santillo, and I wiped out all the good in one evil, selfish moment. I came here to make amends to you, but there is no way I can make amends for killing you. There's no way to make things right, but... At least I want you to know that I realize what a horrible thing I did. And also, for what it's worth, I want you to know I have lived my life every day under this. I realize that no good will ever really come from me because I have this mark on my soul from when I killed you. My children are affected. It is a sickness that grows and affects everyone I come into contact with. I have often thought, Kate, I should take my life, but I am too afraid. And I think that even as broken as I am, 
that my children need me. So Kate, I am sorry for what I robbed you of. The pain I caused your family, especially your mother, Joanne, who is probably the greatest woman I've ever known. I don't know what else to say, Katie. So goodbye. As, Kate, as John continues this very strange tale that he is telling the detective, told them that Jamie had lured Catherine out to the woods, supposedly to help her look for plants she needed for a class she was in. Catherine, being Catherine, readily agreed to help her. As the two went out in the forest, Jamie made sure that Catherine always walked in front of her. Catherine, for her part, was mostly stooped over investigating the various plants along the pathway. Jamie took out the twenty-two caliber gun she'd stolen from her grandmother, and she shot Catherine right in the back of the head. She said Catherine turned around and looked at her with an expression of shock on her face and fell on the ground. Just perfectly arranged. Jamie never touched her. Jesus. <laughs> Jamie took the gun and put another shot into her temple, and afterwards she threw the gun into one of the many dumpsters located throughout the university campus. She then went back to her car, where the three had agreed to meet up, and she waited for Trisha's arrival. John told investigators that the woman who had written the letter was Jamie Letson. They were not familiar with the name and quickly realized that Jamie Kellum was now Jamie Letson. She'd gotten married, and she'd started her own family. Jamie had not led a quiet, uneventful life since college. She had drug problems. She had alcohol problems. She had bank fraud problems and theft problems. And it was the alcohol problems that led her story right to us. Because if it weren't for AA, her story may never have come to light. Because according to the reports, Jamie had a solid alibi for the time of Catherine's death. In reality, the coroner had not accounted for the colder than normal temps in Mobile that February. And the cold weather had worked to preserve Catherine in such a pristine state that she appeared to have died a few hours before she was found instead of several days earlier. The gunshots that had been heard by the guards and the student had nothing to do with the murder. And that threw off the current coroner, too, in determining the time of death. They were actually fireworks that had been let off by students. Detectives learned that Jamie's stepfather could be in possession of the letter that they had heard so much about. They needed to get it from him. They went to the stepfather's house. They knocked on the door, and they asked him if he knew about such a letter. Oh, he said, you mean the letter? Yep, that was the answer. Probably the one we're interested in. Inside of a locked cabinet, Jamie's stepfather pulled a letter out and gave it to them. Another case where people fucking knew. Yes. Jamie Lesson was arrested on November 21st, 2008 for the murder of her friend, Catherine Foster. She was held at the Mobile Municipal Jail and the judge set her bond at a measly $500,000. At the time of her arrest, Jamie was staying at a halfway house called Wingard House. She pled not guilty in court after confessing to the crime during interrogation. On May 27th of 2010, Jamie Lesson was found guilty of first-degree murder, and she is sentenced to life in the Julia Tutwiler Annex Prison, and her first possible parole date is November 1st of 2023. Not very much time at all. Tom had always believed that Jamie had been responsible for the disappearance and death of his beloved Catherine. No, I mean, 13 years before no. she gets paroled, possibly. Yeah. And that is the story of Catherine Foster. I mean, I obviously not the complete story, but Wow. I um I didn't see that one coming. No, because the coroner took information that wasn't right there with the body and used it to determine time of death. Yeah. But I mean even on top of that, because you know it, Jamie I mean, and Trish were together. Mere minutes. I mean, she was gone for mere minutes from her car. Yeah, I mean like so this whole thing 
it, it just I just never never considered that it could be her. Heartbreaking. Absolutely yeah. heartbreaking. Wow. Holy cow. It's unfortunate that any of it happened, but it's not surprising that Jamie has struggled with her entire life. Right, because you can't carry that much guilt around and not expect it to come out and announce itself some way. Drugs are a way of numbing yourself. Alcohol is a yep. way of numbing yourself. I mean, the things that she has been doing, was doing, um, make perfect sense, unfortunately. Yeah. Wow. I'm glad that they caught her. She caught herself. I, I, know. I mean, literally. I'm glad that the AA sponsor had what stays, what happens at AA is supposed to stay at AA, blah, blah, blah. It's anonymous, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm just really glad that the sponsor did the right thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Craziness. All right. <clears throat> it's a good story. Sad, heartbreaking, but well done. Thank you. You have something to take us out with? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, final thought for the day. All right. When we seek to discover the best in others, we tend to bring out the best in ourselves. Very wise. I hope that you all have an amazing week. We love you. We appreciate you, and we'll be back with you next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. This is Larry from A Quickie Anytime. This podcast may contain adult innuendo and coarse language. You've been warned. We have a special guest with us. Uh, Rob. Larry's here. <gasps> Larry, oh, thank God. I've missed you so much. Yeah. She's been real crabby without you. I always knew I was third banana. (laughs) 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 We are 40 seconds in and got a Jesus out of hot off. Common souvenir that people bring home from the United States. An STD? (laughs) (laughs) Only if you're going to Vegas. (laughs) Statue of Liberty. Lions are colorblind. They can't see the football! <laughs> it matches the turf! Anybody care to sing it? Nope. Okay. Well, we do sing. I'm white, I'm tone deaf, I don't sing. That doesn't stop <laughs> us! <laughs> do you twerk on stage? I don't twerk. Well, you are a liar! <laughs> you are a goddamn liar! In oh public. no, no! I watched him do it on a ball field! from Britain has died. <gasps> I'm so sorry. Damn it all. <laughs> Where do I There goes the economy. Brandy <laughs> and beer. Is that a good combination? Um, Sounds I like a hangover waiting to happen. That does not sound like a good combination. I think it ranks right up there with a draft beer and a coffee. Mm. A family member put him in what they called a recovery position. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm like, can we get a little more definition on this? I don't think they're getting a breathalyzer off the dead body. Well, you're well, you can step me. on his chest. Oh, I couldn't do it because I can't even do a breathing test. The, do- the hospital, the doctors are always like, we need you to blow harder. And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> it's a wrong situation. Up. Jesus Christ, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Put shut, me in the, put me up, in the privacy of my own stop, home. Stop, stop. Watch me go. I do believe he's changing colors like a community there. <laughs> I don't think he's blending in with the surroundings. <laughs> I think I have my third shot on that note. <laughs> I'm going to join you on that one. <laughs> oh my God.